Unknown illness hits China, read the headline in the New Scientist magazine in early January. Reports of a mystery virus drifted into Western consciousness at the start of 2020, apparently emerging from the Chinese city of Wuhan. Little did we know that in just a few weeks we'd be facing a global pandemic. And on March the 23rd, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced a lockdown to save lives and protect the NHS, the National Health Service. Lives and livelihoods have been lost. Projects grounded, infrastructure shaken. And so in this edition of the Global Safety Podcast, brought to you by Lloyd's Register Foundation, the charity with the aim of protecting the safety of life and property, we'll be looking at how engineering can help protect our lives and our economy from future pandemics and limit the damage from the remains of this one. I'm Tom Heap and welcome to the Global Safety Podcast. In this special edition, we've gathered a potent posse all uniquely equipped to help slay the COVID dragon. So with me on Zoom once again, sadly not in person, are Professor Richard Clegg, Managing Director of the Lloyds Register Foundation, Dr Juliet Mian, Technical Director of Resilience Shift. Juliet, just while I mention that, can you give me a quick one-sentence explanation of what is Resilience Shift? Yeah, sure. It's a global initiative. Our focus is actually on improving the safety and resilience of our critical infrastructure systems. We have been around longer than COVID, but obviously COVID has given us a lot to think about when we're talking about resilience. For sure. We've also got uh, Dr. Neil Deer, who is from the Turing Institute. The Turing Institute has been working with Lloyd's Register Foundation on something called Project Odysseus, looking at how London can successfully exit lockdown. And we'll come on to that in more detail later in the episode. And Dr. Claire Pekchan. Claire is Director of Safe Marine. And Claire, can you give us an outline of, of what that is, what Safe Marine does? Yeah, um, Safe Marine's a specialist consultancy that I set up in 2016. And what we offer is evidence-based safety management solutions, primarily to the international maritime industry. And we applied psychology to the understanding of the challenges that the industry faces. So very much the, the, the human side and how it interacts, if you like, with the, with the heavy metal side of engineering? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, you've got it in one, yeah. Well, welcome, everyone, and thank you very much for joining the discussion. So first, a, a quick question and a snappy response would be appreciated to get us all going. Were there engineering solutions out there that could have improved our readiness to deal with the global pandemic? Richard, what do you think to that? From the uh, Lloyd's Register Foundation sort of angle, we, we're a, uh, an independent global charity and our focus is on the critical infrastructure that modern society relies on. And this critical infrastructure, uh, some of it is a sort of um, stuff that you could walk up to and touch, like a ship or a power station, and some of it is a bit more distributed, like food supply chains. And what COVID has shown us is that when this sort of critical infrastructure uh, is stressed, uh, then uh, it damages society. And uh, there are lots of lessons that can be learned from COVID about stressing uh, such critical infrastructure. There are lots of ways in which we can stress this critical infrastructure. One is is uh, such things as a pandemic, but there are lots of other ways. And could we imagine what would happen if several of these things all arrived at once? So I think there's lots of lessons that can be backed out of this to do with making critical infrastructure more resilient and safer. Well, that's very much where we're going to go towards the end of this discussion. But Claire Peckchan, any thoughts of things we really should have done in the engineering sphere? If we think about engineering solutions, and we understand by that term 
um, data-driven, um, methodical, scientific evidence-based, then I believe, yes, there are a couple of things that would have enabled us to maybe have responded. And what are they? What are those couple of things? Well, go back a step. Essentially, as people, we are very intuitive in our decision-making, particularly when um, you know there's a lot of uncertainty. And we're not very good at making rational decisions when there's a lot of uncertainty. And we tend to default to making representative cases of things, so likening the situation that we're facing to something else. And I think the trap that we fell into was to liken the coronavirus to to like a a flu-like virus. And if we'd actually employed rational decision-making, we might have come up with um, an understanding of where it is not like the flu virus and then been able to respond accordingly. So I think using the principles of rational decision-making would be one. And the other is something that I use in the in the safety sphere is the principles of behaviour-based safety management. Um, to put it crudely, consequences drive behaviour. And I think if we were to get more compliance of our citizens to the advice on infection prevention, then we could apply the understanding of how consequences drive behaviour in order to put out the messages more clearly. Well, we'll pick up on some of those later in the programme. But uh, Juliet Mian, any thoughts about engineering kind of things that we maybe should have done already when the virus arrived? Yeah, well, I mean, as an engineer, I'm always a believer that engineering solutions are, are going to help in, in any decision. I think how we see resilience is both the preparation in advance, but also the decisions we take, exactly as Claire was saying, while we're responding, how we recover positively from a crisis. I think actually one really important thing that has been emphasized by COVID is that even for us as engineers dealing with the technical solutions, COVID is all about the people, the decisions they make, how they behave. And there's a really important learning for us as engineers to be designing our solutions effectively to work with the people who they're they're going to help. Neil, what do you think? I think that would have been hard initially because we didn't really know. We didn't have enough data to understand how the virus propagated and how it spread around society and indeed the globe. And before we knew that, it would have been hard to suggest what solutions we would employ. So you're wary about saying, you know, in hindsight, there were lots of things we, we should have done, we should have known. Exactly. Richard, while I've got you there, let's talk about some of the specific initiatives that the Lloyds Register Foundation is involved in. I think we're looking particularly at at Fish Safe, Resilience Shift, we mentioned Project Odysseus, and and also things to do with uh, maintaining STEM education. Now, for Fish Safe, we have actually done an interview with Eric Holliday, who is the CEO of the Fish Safety Foundation. He's based in New Zealand, and so I spoke to him a little bit earlier immediately it impacted on us and we, we started uh, communicating with our people on the ground and, and looked at how we can carry on the work that we do. There's not much we can do to stop a virus uh, evolving. We were able to make some money available from our funds so that we could provide real basics like hand sanitizer and masks to our people that were working out in, in, in Bangladesh on the ground. And there was enough in in the kitty to be able to get them to buy and distribute to the fishers that we had been working with. There wasn't much we can do in terms of the numbers, but there was certainly something 
and it helped spread that message of, of health and safety. In Bangladesh and, and many parts of the world, there is no choice. They have to go and fish. It not only sustains their families, but it sustains uh, communities and, and livelihoods and all types of things. So there, there really isn't a choice. They have to go and fish. You know, it's inconvenient for us in, in many parts of the world to not be able to go to the office. These guys don't have a choice. The work carries on. I mean, in safety, we, we talk uh, about a hierarchy of needs. Top of the list there is, is engineering art, you know, uh, preventing these things happening, putting safeguards in, in place that people aren't infected. And unfortunately, right at the bottom, or the least effective way, is providing personal protective equipment, which in our case, given the circumstances, is probably the only thing that we can do. We have to plan ahead, and, and I'm talking not, not about fishing now, I'm talking about globally. We have to plan ahead. We have to get the personal protective equipment in. We have to educate people about wearing face masks, the basic, basic, basics that, that you can do. When it gets to the point where the pandemic is, is in the public domain, people have to follow the science, and the science is very clear. Richard Clegg, how is Fish Safe going, as far as you can tell? Fish Safe is a, um, a, a remarkable project for us uh, as the foundation. We can all imagine how hazardous uh, sea fishing is, but it is particularly acute in uh, poorer countries. And, you know, it's a really staggering fact that uh, in Bangladesh alone, which is where Fish Safe is starting out, there are 1,350 fatalities a year. Uh, and these are these are those that are reported. These are the ones that we know about. These are real people who leave, you know, real loved ones behind. And the question for us, if we stand back from this, is, well, you know, what intervention on the ground is actually going to reduce those numbers? What could we do that would make a, a, a significant difference? Is it better technology? Is it better boats? Is it better regulation? Um, and what Fish Safe is doing is working with communities on the ground. It's about education. It's about understanding. And it set itself some really big targets uh, to reduce the number of ship losses by 20% and the number of fatalities by 25%. So it's, it's early days. So Fish Safe was already going prior to coronavirus and was to do with the reduction of accidents and fatalities within fishing, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Fish Safe was a project which was already laid down before coronavirus came. It was always trying to tackle this tragic you know, fatality rate in, in the industry in, in, in Bangladesh. And why it became important to us in uh, the pandemic was that because of the networks that it had built up on the ground and the trust that it had got in the local community, it was able to swim through that, to be able to work through that and distribute some of the PPP equipment and, uh, uh, and also give uh, advice and guidance through its networks. Something I've often wondered, particularly in, in, in countries that have more unstable economies and, if you like, where the risk to life is already quite severe from their job, when coronavirus came along, do you, did you find communities like that, like the fishing industry in Bangladesh, 
took it as seriously as the rest of us, or did they think, well, this is just another challenge, and compared to the other, some of my other risks I'm facing, it's pretty small? Uh, well, I mean, that's really interesting because, you know, we can, you know, from our privileged position that we're sitting in, take a very sort of white Anglo-Saxon way of looking at the world, and we uh, see certain risks, and we think that, you know, that those are commonly shared by everybody else, that people have different things to worry about on their plates in everyday life. And uh, also they have uh, different sources of inf- uh, trusted sources of information, you know, to understand some of these risks as well. So, you know, I think everybody's got a different uh, perception of this. But we must come on to resilience shift, which I mentioned at the start. Uh, Dr. Juliet Mann is technical director. And as I understand, you focus on four key areas of infrastructure, transport, energy, water and digital. And looking at that list, it's my impression that in Europe, at least, they all weathered the COVID storm fairly well. But am I missing something? And what were the stresses or pinch points? I think it is fair to say that certainly in the in the UK and Europe, our infrastructure has proved resilient. I think it's worth saying that that's that is not by luck or by chance. And there's probably been a huge amount of work, both in preparation and during the crisis behind the scenes that none of us see. And it's very easy for us to just assume that, well, you know, flick the light switch, the lights come on. Um, there were stories, for example, National Grid in the UK had to send their operators to stay and live in near the control centres for six week period so that they weren't exposed for the virus. They were away from their families. So, you know, the, the lights were kept on, but a lot of work was was behind that. So they made their own little sort of self-quarantined pod to make sure our lights stay Exactly. On. Whilst they they are not the visible the visible key workers that we've seen during the crisis, they're absolutely key workers to keep those services going. And I think in terms of the stresses that's been very interesting for us. Pre-COVID, a lot of the thinking about resilience was much more about a physical, you know, a flood, an extreme storm, something physical that affects the infrastructure. What we've actually seen are, are quite complex things like change in demand, a move from city centres to domestic demand of, of water and, and electricity, our transport services, in fact, being very impacted by no demand. You know, they're, they're rev- they have revenue models based on demand and number of users. So there have been some, some really key changes to our infrastructure. So take transport, for example, you're saying that some of them have gone bust and therefore wouldn't be available in the future, basically. Well, they haven't gone bust because measures have been put in place to sort of support and and keep them going. In the short term, we're all getting a clear message around avoiding public transport where we can. A lot of our work in the infrastructure sector for many years has been exactly the opposite, to, you know, to, to reduce the use of, pro- use of private vehicles, to have people traveling on trains and, and other public transport. So... Yeah, the longer term impacts of some of these changes are going to be significant. I think one of the important points with resilience is there's never room for complacency. Again, a message from COVID is be prepared to be surprised. And we shouldn't think because things did continue to function well during COVID that we won't be surprised by the next thing. The next thing may not be a pandemic. So if we come out of this thinking we know how to be resilient to pandemics, we're fine will be surprised by the next thing. Richard mentioned something in the introduction as well that is very important about the the combination of scenarios. So we're looking at the moment COVID plus extreme weather. We've, without wanting to take the conversation in a different direction, but are we facing Brexit plus second wave of COVID at the same time? And what would that mean to our supply chains and our infrastructure systems? So this potential for 
combined stresses, maybe we can function under one scenario, but can we still continue to function if they two or th- three things happen at the same time? Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask sort of almost, were we lucky? Because certainly I, I've done some recent studies and work on, on our food system and how resilient that was. And uh, some of the analysts said to me, you know, yes, it did hold up, but we were quite lucky, for instance, in the UK, that there wasn't a, a stop on what's called a short straight, the, the Calais to Dover uh, transport route, and that we must be careful about planning for the next war on the basis of the last one, as they say in the military. Do you think we were a bit lucky here? Um, a combination, I think, of planning and, and timing, but I absolutely agree with that. You know, no, no complacency. We've always in resilience talked about the uncertain future. But I think that message is we don't even know, you know, we don't know what next month's going to look like. We don't know what the end of the year is going to look like. There are so many different combinations of things that might happen. Well, one of the interesting things I want to come on to the discussion at the end is in effect, how much we insure ourselves, how much we prepare and pay to make ourselves resilient against risks. I think that's one of the really key questions. But I must come on to uh, Project Odysseus, which I mentioned at the start. It was launched in partnership with the Alan Turing Institute. And Dr. Neil Deere is with us, and he's been working on the project since the beginning of the pandemic. Neil, very simple. Uh, What is Project Odysseus and what have you been up to in the pandemic? So this whole thing kicked off, let's call it January. And this is when we started hearing sort of reports coming out all over the planet that something was happening with response to a virus. And the great majority of us were working on another project called the London Air Quality Project, where we're trying to develop machine learning algorithms and data science platforms to understand air quality in London. It very soon transpired that we had the sort of data that may indeed be useful to monitor and track the virus. And that is data such as satellite images, uh, scoot sensors, which are those wires you see running across the roads. It's oyster car data, it's public transport data, it's uh, traffic camera data. And because we were sitting on all of that, it turned out we could be quite useful in understanding what the virus was doing. Now, just break that down for me a bit. How is satellite information, Oyster card data, and things like that, how does that help with tracking a virus? We're using all that data, pulling it together, and using it as a proxy for busyness, which is to say, where are people congregating around London? What hotspots are there? And we reckon if they're congregating where they shouldn't be, especially when there's a lockdown, there might be outbreak of the virus. That's the general idea. So if, if we can spot, if we can spot a big cluster appearing, we can not only say to the authorities, hey, there's a big thing going on here, people are there in real time, we can also prepare the local hospitals to to reach down the line and say, ah, you should probably move some ventilators to that hospital because there was a massive gathering, for example, the BLM protests, all around there, there are loads of hospitals that should be prepared with ventilators in case an outbreak is happening, or will happen rather. What have you been able to discover about the behaviour of Londoners? By and large, they respected the lockdown very well, which is very impressive to see. So what we're using is we have three profiles, which is pre-lockdown, mid-lockdown, post-lockdown. So we're, we've designed this alarm system that allows us to compare what London is doing right now in terms of clustering and where people are congregating and comparing it to those other three profiles to allow the likes of the Greater London Authority to design interventions, for example, widening the streets or closing up certain streets to, for example, keep people distant. If I was someone who was very worried about outdoor spread risk and I wanted to walk from uh, two points in London, a couple of miles apart, I don't know, from St. Paul's Cathedral Tate to St. James's Park, could you give me uh, the, the low COVID route? That's uh, a very good point, actually, because we are developing routing algorithms that do exactly that. Uh, so we're working with algorithms that 
try to map you around the hotspots of where there are a lot of people currently. And that doesn't have to be for humans alone. That could be for traffic as well. So you can tell the bus route to reroute if there's a huge event going on in, say, Piccadilly Circus. So we're designing algorithms like that that will allow, again, the decision makers to use it or not. But that's up to them. To come full circle, that's, to my mind, where it overlaps with what you were saying about air quality. Because I remember looking at those kind of maps a couple of years ago and seeing how I could uh, do exactly that, walk from one place to another in the lower particulate or lower nitrous oxide atmosphere. Exactly, exactly. That's where it comes from. One element of our critical infrastructure very close to Lloyd's Register Foundation is, of course, shipping. Here, the virus had a rapid but largely unseen impact. In many ports, cargoes were welcomed, but crews were forbidden to land. Many thousands of maritime engineers on cargo ships, maybe waiters on luxury cruise liners, deckhands on fishing vessels have been caught up in what the United Nations warns is a growing humanitarian crisis. It's already been blamed for actually several suicides. Well, Claire Peck-Chan, who we heard from earlier, is a maritime psychologist from Safe Marine. So, Claire, what is it normally like on board a liner or tanker? And, and then how's that changed? To start with, I'd say that probably... Life on board a cruise liner that's um, offering passengers a holiday versus a tanker uh, are probably quite different. But as seafarers, essentially the sort of working conditions would be comparable. So there's certain characteristics about the seafaring way of life, the occupation. So they can work on board for up to 11 months in a year, but it varies typically amongst the seniority of the people on board. So captains and chief engineers, the most senior people on board, may only work 12 weeks on board, whereas the crew may be on for 11 months. So um, and what we need to bear in mind is those 11 months don't come with weekends off. They are seven days a week working and they could potentially and legally work up to 90 hours in a week. The majority, I would say, in sort of today's world will be on what I call contingent contracts. So the, the equivalent to our zero hours contracts that we have ashore. So they're only paid when they're on board. What's been the effect of uh, COVID-19 on this large group of people? Because of the contingent nature and the fact that they're governed by how long they can stay on board every day of the week, um, there may be around the world hundreds of thousands of crew exchanges happening on, on um, commercial vessels. And essentially the impact of coronavirus, because there's no flights, because airports closed, because countries have pulled up the, the shutters on their borders, not long after the, the pandemic was announced, crew changes were stopped essentially. So all those hundreds of thousands of exchanges were stopped overnight and so the situation is that those on board have essentially been stuck on board since the outbreak of the pandemic with no end in sight to their contract. There are some exchanges happening, but the majority of people are stuck on board. And it's worth thinking what that means, because we might think it's been tough to have been locked down at home. But imagine if you were locked down in your office or factory for six to 11 months, you know, uh, that really could lead to an extremely stressful atmosphere. And, and, and there really have been serious mental health issues here and, and attempted suicides and things like that. Unfortunately, yes, there's been a number of cases reported where people have had the promise of being relieved, only to have that promise reneged on through no, no fault of their own. Uh, companies are doing their best. 
Um, you know, when it happens two, three times, particularly if you want to get home to your family, you're worried about them because like us, they'll be worried about their their loved ones back home. Um, so it can be really powerful sense of hopelessness, um, which which can lead people to take drastic action to to relieve their suffering. What, what can be done to help? What what have you or others been able to, to do to assist? Um, well, I, I'm part of a charity that looks after seafarers. It's actually funded by Lloyd's Register, Confidential Hazardous Information Reporting Programme. And we produced a publication um, and I just in that set out the sorts of things that organisations and seafarers themselves can do without having to change the minds of intransigent governments to get them off the ship. So they might not be able to get them off, but things like empathic leadership, giving information about what what they can do, particularly, you know, with situations of people coming on board, how do they handle that? Um, So giving them information advice, challenging negative thinking which can lead to a spiral of down into a depression and providing facilitative support so providing opportunities to have discussions with professionals um, through zoom and and skype and so on and so forth but also opening up employee assistance programs so they've got a, a hotline to call if they're in dire straits and encouraging group activities on board so encouraging them or assisting them to to support one another are the primary things that you can do. And just briefly, if if you would, you you said shipping companies are doing their best. Could could they really be doing more to say, look, we've got a serious, you know, issue here. You know, we need to take more care of them, and also pressure some of those port governments harder to say, you know, you you rely on these people to get your food into your country. You need to give them a bit of respect. No, that's a fair point. Certainly, I think, as I was saying before, consequences drive behaviour. So if they continue to take the cargoes, continue to trade into ports, buy their fuel in these ports and so on and so forth, then ultimately it's the seafarers going to pay because nobody's going to change their behaviour. And I think the industry, certainly that I work with more closely, the tanker industry, they're, they're very wary about antitrust and, and cartels and things like that, understandably, and rightly so. But I think there could be a lot more collaborative action and also assistance. I think you know, governments in developing countries might not necessarily have the resources to deal with these issues or, or to to understand the way through of allowing the traffic of seafarers without risk to their own citizens. So I think companies have huge resources and so they can bring those to bear to assist governments in in enabling the transit of their people. Well, thank you very much, Claire. And I now want to really bring the panel together to discover what engineering can do for us. What could we do differently with the help of engineering, I suppose, to prepare for either another wave of COVID-19 or a future pandemics it strikes me this is about how we can suppress future infectious diseases without suffocating our economy and society Juliet, what do you think has, has, has engineering got a, a big role here what, give me some examples of what they could be doing we have as engineers in the uk infrastructure context managed to keep working in the short term and we have managed to keep building things and constructing things and, and to very rapidly and immediately find new ways of working so that construction sites can operate with social distancing 
practices in place and the role of engineering and infrastructure in supporting the economy is is always very evident so some of these big new infrastructure projects and you know the sort of fiscal stimulus type spending shows how important our role is to the to the future richard what do you think to that you know are the things that engineers could we be doing you know can we make ourselves more virus ready if you like in the future <laughs> i take a very sort of broad uh, interpretation of, of what is engineering we can think much wider than just thinking about mechanical engineering oily rag solutions to pandemics um you know in the same way that we can just look at pandemics purely from a medical standpoint it's all about people at the end of the day and the importance of behavioural sciences, people's attitudes uh, to risk, uh, understanding of risk, where do they get their information from? Um, because at the end of the day, dealing with a pandemic, it's all about trying to go, uh, get people to behave in certain ways. So you think the the behaviour is as important as the the sort of physical engineering. Absolutely. The one thing about people is that they are predictably unpredictable and you can have the best piece of technology, you can have the best policy, uh, you can have the best equipment, but uh, if it's not used or adopted in the right way, for whatever reasons, uh, whether it's distrust or just uh, uh, public attitude, then, then that doesn't work. So it is this parallel of, you know, engineering medical solutions as well as social science and behavioural science aspects. But it, it strikes me you're all being surprisingly coy about the, the, the physical, the prospects of physical engineering. You know, for instance, it, it, should trains be built with the same kind of aircon that they allegedly have in aeroplanes that, you know, has a biocide in them, so it makes it much safer to travel in trains in the future? Surely that is an engineering style solution that could help keep society going i mean i just sort of pick that as an example but do you does anyone want to pick that up surely there are physical engineering solutions that could help you know society to keep going and the answer is of yes of course we could uh, throw engineering solutions and spend money to uh, uh, solve or alleviate these problems the question is you know what does that mean to the price then of a rail ticket and um uh, and it, it is about cost benefit and I think one of the things in making these engineering type decisions about, you know, do we put these filtration systems in or whatever, whatever, is that we need a balanced debate in society about what the risk is. And, and does society think it's worthwhile, uh, therefore, spending society's resources on solving that risk? Otherwise, what we are doing, we're spending lots of money to alleviate anxiety and not necessarily to save risk. Well, this is, a, to my mind, some of the meat of it. Should we be if you like, making life a bit more expensive so that it's a bit more secure? Straight question, Juliet. Should we be doing that? Always there is a, a balanced decision to make because if you if you put more money into one place, you're automatically not putting that in another area. And I do think, you know, it, it definitely is becoming the theme of this, but there are sometimes low-cost, low-technology interventions, which may be cheaper. And also, which may, I think this is important, may help with multiple shocks and stresses. If we come out of this and we're putting all our effort and our resources and our money into pandemic, we may wish we hadn't when something else surprises us. We've got to be quite careful, haven't we, about, you know, we've seen what the world can throw at us. If we really come out of this and say, Nope, we're happy with our kind of just-in-time, squeak-by, low-cost lifestyle. 
we're going to have to answer if you know, millions of us get killed by the next thing that comes along. Because we're going to say we saw the danger and we decided to not put an insurance policy in. Neil? I think it's difficult because what are we comparing against? How, is this a good death count or a bad death count? It's very hard to say. Good question. Um, compared to recent events with the, the technology that we have. For example, the Royal Society responded with the RAMP initiative, which pulled together all mathematicians, computational scientists to deal, or not to deal, to even work on COVID-19 really fast to just understand what it is. And that was, that was a really fast response. And if you're asking us, should we prepare ourselves for everything? That's going to be incredibly expensive. I don't, I don't know how we would do that. So maybe just in time is the only thing we can do. Richard, you had your hand up? Yeah, yeah, just picking up on that point about, you know, do we invest and prepare for everything? And the answer is, well, well, of course we can't because, you know, trying to do that is only as good as our imagination and things happen or combination of things happen that we never dreamt of and we call them black swans. And so, you know, rather than trying to second guess the future, uh, what's going to occur, the likelihood of it occurring and if it did occur, what would be the consequences of it and to head those consequences off at the past, what do we need to do? how much do we need to spend rather than looking at it in that sort of probabilistic way it goes back to resilience again to say bad things do happen um, and they will happen and they'll happen in combinations that we never really imagined and, and were, were prepared for and so um, it all comes back to resilience and and just uh, making sure that no matter what happens to a system it can absorb bounce back from and recover from being stressed but haven't we got to be really careful about using the word resilience as a sort of trite oh we need to be resilient you know we've just established that to be genuine it costs money and as a panel you seem to be saying not sure it's worth spending that money it's not about evading spending money or or sitting on the fence about it. There are finite resources in society, so what 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 are we going to direct them to? And uh, you know the point that I was making a moment ago, it's not about trying to alleviate anxiety or alleviate fear. It's about saving real risk, and therefore we need that balanced debate in society. Claire. It's about being more deft at our responses, being able to mobilize resources. Um, strategies, contingencies, responses in in a quicker way, perhaps than what we've done, and and to make sure that uh, decision making is timely and not delayed unnecessarily. And I think that takes not necessarily money, but an openness of mind and a willingness to collaborate and cooperate with people that perhaps you wouldn't necessarily collaborate and cooperate with in normal whatever normal may come to be life well you just mentioned collaboration i was just interested to know in some of the responses the sort of sort of medical engineering responses we've seen to the coronavirus has been some cooperation and, and some competition it seems to me with things like vaccines and track and trace programs they seem to have been developed separately by companies or governments rather than in collaboration i was just wondering if this is good or bad is it wasted duplication or is it creative competition does anyone want to take that on i think there's a bit of both i think there are always winners and losers but overall my view is the collaboration is the most important thing i think we've already been talking about finite and valuable resources so to spend those doing the same thing over and over again possibly reinventing wheels i think there's also something that we've learned from covid we are all part of a system and we don't come out of a crisis like this well if the other parts of that system that we depend on don't also come out well. So there's a, you know, we, we need to collaborate and we need to actually ensure that 
all of society and you know globally will come out of this crisis successfully not try and only you know not try and be the winners on our own and we saw some very straightforward kind of engineers as heroes um actions with things like ventilators and, and other uh, medical technology where people worked incredibly fast and, and, and incredibly effectively to, to come up with life-saving solutions. Yeah, yeah. events like a, a global pandemic and, uh, and another uh, global challenges facing the planet like climate change, etc. I mean, these are global challenges requiring global solutions uh, and it's beyond uh, the capability and the resource of, of an individual corporation or an inv- individual country to come up with the solutions. And it goes back to your point about you know the need for uh, cooperation and collaboration in order to converge toward uh, solutions and I know from a Lloyd's Register Foundation perspective uh, we set ourselves these big challenges you know they're like uh, the pole star that we're uh, uh, navigating towards how to make food safe how to make the sea safe they're so much bigger than us and we can only achieve solutions for these by building collaborations and coalitions of support now climate change many people agree that it is far and away a greater threat than coronavirus was if we look at it overall and indeed coronavirus has shown us what we can do if we feel genuinely threatened. So what should we be learning from this? I'm going to start with Juliet. What are the lessons here? Everything that we've seen happen since the beginning of this year, and it's been global and it's been huge, is going to be so much bigger with climate change. So if we're not learning from what we've seen now about what we're going to do differently as engineers in the future, how we're going to use technology, not just reduce climate change happening, but also how to be resilient to the extreme weather that we're seeing already, then we really haven't learned anything. And my worry is we weren't prepared for this one and climate change is coming even bigger, but even more slowly. We saw a a small reduction in in emissions, for example, when everything stopped. Not enough, not for long enough. And we need to be doing that every year, year on year with with more reductions. So we we really need to take this seriously and, and work hard. And it absolutely proves the old boiling the frog cliche, doesn't it? Because when we put ourselves immediately into hot water, we jumped out, whereas this slow threat from uh, climate change seems to have us all going to sleep. Um, Anyone else want to pick up on this sort of nexus between coronavirus engineering and climate change? The pandemic has shown us how some sort of an external situation can impact on critical infrastructure and climate change likewise can impact on critical infrastructure. It's about the impact of the environment on man. Climate change is happening because man is impacting on the environment, but then Mother Nature bites back um, and that environment then impacts back on man. And is our critical infrastructure that we're reliant upon able to absorb those sorts of uh, acute stresses? Are are we designing them uh, to absorb those tensions? As we're coming to the end now, I wonder if you could sort of frame some messages you'd like the audience to take away from here about how engineering fits in the the, the legacy of the COVID-19 pandemic. Julia, what would you say are kind of the, the lessons that people should take away? To me, the importance of working across disciplines, not putting ourselves in one small silo of being engineers. We've talked a lot about people and behaviours, and, and I think that's a future we need to get to, that we're designing technical solutions with people firmly in mind. And the importance of frequently adapting to uncertainty as, you know, 
when I trained as a, as a, as a civil engineer 25 odd years ago, we were fairly clear. We knew what we were doing. There's a big change in thinking now about a, a highly complex and uncertain future. But also, I do think it, it's more important than it has ever been. So we should, as engineers, be excited by that. Claire? The lesson that we can take from what's happened for the future is that we have to build cooperation because our default position is selfishness. And we've seen that in our response internationally to climate change. It's, you know, I want to protect my own resources, my own economies and so on and so forth. And I, and I think that there is no easy solution to counteracting this selfish gene, but perhaps is to inculcate in our educational programmes more looking towards generosity and altruism and how we cooperate rather than competing for the future to 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 solve some of these problems that transcend beyond individuals and individual countries. Neil, it's striking when I'm uh, asking about sort of lessons learned and, and takeaway messages. Uh, a group of four engineers are very keen to stress the human side, not the mechanical side. Maybe my, my stereotype of engineers is clearly woefully misplaced. I suppose I would say this. I think as a community, we've come together really well during this crisis. And there's been an absolute massive collaboration, collaborative effort all around the planet. And you have companies like BA Systems, Rolls-Royce, building ventilators from scratch, new designs, the same as Dyson. But as we wind down now and go back to normality, BA is going to continue building submarine. The Rolls-Royce are going to keep on building jet engines and, and Dyson are going to be vacuum cleaners again. So unless we embed some sense of, I don't know, responsibility perhaps in not in the workforce, even just in, in the board of these companies, that this is going to, this is going to happen again and in a much bigger way. We're in for a tough time, I think. I just want to explore that a little bit. Do you mean that the boards of these big companies should be almost putting a percentage aside to, to work on resilience projects or something like that with engineering? The collaborative effort needs to be there that they, if this happens again, they, they have to reach out to Rolls-Royce and say, hey, what, which guys do you have who can do this? And we have these guys, you know, should we do something together? Rather than, as was mentioned, having a purely uh, profit-driven motive and, and purely selfish motive. I think my parting comment would be, again, it is about the, the human, the people side of things. You know, we need to move away from this uh, vision that, uh, you know, engineering is all about hard hats and heavy machinery and, and construction sites and things like that. Um, it is a broad church. And, you know, this area of behavioural sciences and the public understanding of risk is a, a key component. Well, thank you very much, all four of you. You've definitely injected a lot of humanity into engineering uh, today on, the, on this discussion. So thank you very much for that, as well as some real insights into what engineers can do on both the human and the mechanical side to help alleviate the impact of a future pandemic and possibly other both foreseen, brackets, climate change and unforeseen threats. So thank you very much indeed to Richard Clegg, Juliet Mian, Claire Pekchan and Neil Deer. Next time, we'll be looking at how Lloyd's Register Foundation is encouraging innovation in the technology designed to keep us all safe. The Global Safety Podcast, brought to you by Lloyd's Register Foundation. Please subscribe so that you don't miss an episode.